Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number 13 with Dr. Rupi Adjula. from the doctor's kitchen i'm going to be showing you a one pan cation scramble from my new book the doctor's kitchen eat to be illness i'm going to be talking through the health benefits of it i'm going to show you how easy this one pan dish is it really ticks all the boxes for the principles of healthy eating that you'll read about in eat to be illness it's super delicious and i know you're going to enjoy making this They say that an apple a day keeps the doctor away, and our next guest, it really is living proof of that. Yes, Dr. Rupi Ojila is a practicing NHS doctor, but believes that the food that we put in our mouths every day is far more powerful than the pills that he would ever prescribe. So about uh, eight, nine years ago, when I qualified as a junior doctor, I was working uh, at a really busy hospital. Uh, I was on the 12th day of a, like a long stretch of shifts, and I actually started having palpitations. I tried to ignore them, but they were going really, really fast. I spoke to my boss, felt my pulse, and then within about half an hour, I was admitted to the hospital that I was uh-huh. working in. Mm-hmm. I was hooked up to a cardiac monitor, bleep taken off me, and I was, I was actually parked next to a patient I'd been treating oh, earlier gosh. that day as well. Um, I was in something called atrial fibrillation, which is where your heart beats very irregularly, in yeah. my car case very fast, about 200 beats per minute. Um, and I thought it would be a one-off episode, but actually these episodes would happen two to three times per week for the next year or so. So you were facing uh, lifelong medicine yeah. or surgical procedure, both of which yes. you were, you know, they were options, but you wanted to explore something different and it was food. It was exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the cardiologists were recommending the procedure. The only other person who was not was my mum, actually. She was the one who said, you need to look at your lifestyle. You're very stressed. So what did you change? I changed food straight away. I mean, I was relying on hostel food, sandwiches, that sort of stuff. Um, and I started eating more dark meaty vegetables, adding more colour and spice to my food. Mm. And then I started attenuating my stress using meditation techniques, employing sleep as well, sleep hygiene, because, you know, obviously working as a junior doctor at the time, yeah. night shifts and everything, that was having an impact. Basically, the plant chemicals can have profound effects on your DNA. What are some other ways that you think that possibly it could have benefited you? There are a number of effects that food can have on our body. When I eat a more plant-focused diet, I'm having more fiber. That fiber is going to be nurturing your microbiota, so the population of microbes that live in and around your body. Those have impacts on glucose regulation, stress regulation, they change inflammation pathways. They can signal uh, to your immune system. Um, they increase the production of short-chain fatty acids in your colon, and that can have uh, effects on inflammation signaling as well. When you introduce more plants, you can change the expression of your genetic material. So not your gene sequences themselves, but certainly the expression of them. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a blessed day. Thank you for pressing play and listening to the Medspiration podcast. In this episode, we took a trip overseas to check in with our British counterparts. I've been following Dr. Rupi Ajla on his Instagram, The Doctor's Kitchen, for a while now, and I began noticing that they're truly revolutionizing the way doctors are approaching medicine. We had the honor of dissecting his newest best-selling book, Eat to Be Illness, and I'm happy to say that it's become my go-to cookbook since reading it. This episode was something special. We jam-packed it with practical tips that highlight how taking control of what you put on your plate can give you power over your health. And I can't wait to hear what you guys think about it. If you'd like to add to this conversation, please message us on Instagram 
The handle is at Medspiration. We'd love to hear from you. And again, guys, thank you so much for helping our podcast grow. If you've been enjoying this content, please go on iTunes and rate us five stars and leave a review. Let us know what parts of the podcast that you love most. Thank you, guys. And without further ado, let the Medspiration begin. It is my honor and privilege to present Dr. Rupi Ajala. He's a National Health Service medical doctor and international best-selling author of The Doctor's Kitchen. Dr. Rupi, I want to start by thanking you and your team for sending us a copy of your book. Oh, uh, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Eat to Beat Illness. Uh, I'm happy to say that you know this book has officially become a part of my kitchen. And my wife and I, we've been exploring some of the recipes in here. So Epic. I appreciate awesome. you for that. This isn't your regular cookbook. What I realize is, and what I love most about it, is how you integrate the newest and coolest medical science into eating healthy. So my intention today is pretty simple. It's to highlight how our audience out there can take control of their life and begin eating for their brain, their heart, immunity, mood, and skin health. And how doing so can help them gain power in preventing disease. So without further ado, Dr. Rupi, can you please introduce yourself? Sure, man. Thank you very much for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to be on. Um, so I'm Rupi. Yeah, I'm a, a general practitioner. I work in emergency medicine in the NHS here in London. I'm a firm believer in uh, what you choose to put in your plate being one of the most important health interventions that anyone can make. And um, I'm also doing my master's in nutritional medicine. And I've founded Culinary Medicine UK in, uh, in England, which is where we teach doctors how to cook as well as the foundations of clinical uh, nutrition uh, and medical school. So that's kind of like me in a nutshell. And I, and I wrote a couple of books as well, one of which you have, which I'm really glad to see. And I'm, I'm glad to hear it's been part of your kitchen now. 100%. And I'm so big on that. The food is medicine, uh, teaching doctors how to cook, you know, I mean, we definitely didn't get enough of that knowledge in medical school. I mean, I can explain the biochemistry and stuff, but I literally just throw us in a kitchen and teach us stuff. Like, I'm glad that you start there and then you advocate. That's that's something beautiful. We all need a little bit more than that. Absolutely. And, and to be honest, you guys in the US are the pioneers of this. Um, culinary medicine isn't something that we've invented over here. Um, Tulane Medical School down in New Orleans have been doing this for a number of years. We actually collaborated with them for a little while uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I know Columbia University, Harvard, they've all got their own culinary medicine program. So everyone's doing something in a little way. And it, you know what? It's really responding to the need um, and the demand from patients. They want to know what else they can do to look after their own health beyond just pharmaceuticals. I, I agree 100%. So I wanted to begin with something personal. Uh, during your time as a resident physician, you mentioned in your book that you were diagnosed with having atrial fibrillation. And would you mind sharing details about your journey and how it led you to where you are today? Yeah, sure, man. So back in 2009, uh, I was a junior doctor. I was about three months into my first um, rotation. Um, I was at the nursing station. I, I'd been doing a shift for about 10 days or so. I mean, 12 hour shifts, they're pretty long. You know what it's like. You probably just come <laughs> off one, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and um, I've noticed that my my heart was beating really, really fast. Um, and I put off asking my boss to feel my pulse. But as soon as they did, 
Um, she took my bleep off me. I was hooked up to a cardiac monitor and it showed barn door atrial fibrillation, which just for your listeners who, who don't, who are not medics, it's where your heart beats irregularly, in my case, very fast. Um, and I thought this might be a one-off episode, but I went on to have these episodes two to three times a week, wow. lasting anywhere between 12 and 36 hours at a time. Um, and then started my journey, really, uh, of going from cardiologist to cardiologist, seeing interventionists, uh, having the echoes, the cardiac MRIs, the electrophysiology studies. I was put on um, bisoprolol, a, a beta blocker to slow down the rate of the heart, um, flecainide as and when to abort the arrhythmias. Um, and I was going to have something called an ablation, which is very yep. pr- a guide run to the heart and then you, you burn an area around the pulmonary vein um, and the one person who said I should really look at my lifestyle was my mum and uh, my mum's my not a medic um, uh, no one in my family are medics uh, but they come from sort of uh, I mean we're both from an Indian disposition I'm, I'm assuming yeah, um, yeah. and uh, y- you know that that sort of um, the culture around Ayurveda um, ancient medicine lifestyle medicine holistic living it's sort of ingrained into the way they were brought up. And, um, you know, growing up in London, it's not so much there, but I was certainly taught more about it during my teen years. And so I started looking at my lifestyle and the, the easiest way to start for me was looking at my food. And luckily, I was taught how to cook before I went to medical school by my mum. And I started um, just putting more greens on my plate, eating more plant focused, uh, having lots of nuts and seeds de-stressing, changing my exercise regime, trying to focus on sleep. Um, and it was this huge like catalog of different things that I did that probably led to me overcoming my atrial fibrillation within about 12 months. Um, and that still today uh, stuns a lot of people. It still stuns me. And, and really over the last 11 years of me doing the doctor's kitchen and putting out content and learning a bit more about nutrition, uh, it's been me trying to retrospectively figure out why on earth that was possible um, and, and how we can apply this to patients, this sort of um, uh, a holistic perspective um, on how we can treat people. Man, you know, so you said a few things that just, they touched my heart because my mom has inspired so many healthy lifestyle changes in my life. Like both of my parents in our backyard, they grow their own vegetables, their own fruits. And, you know, just think, things, the art of, you know, medicine in India, these are normal things to them. So they always ate pretty well. They always got their vegetables. And to me, you know, growing up in California, we eat out a lot. I played sports. So I knew to eat relatively healthy, but Again, it was my mom who inspired a healthier lifestyle. And at first, I was always like, my parents are from India. They don't know anything about America. And that was when I was really young. And then as I got older and as I'm still growing older, I'm realizing, whoa, they had like ancient wisdom that like we don't even have here in the States. So I'm realizing like they're kind of ahead of the curve when it comes to you're using food as medicine. It's pretty incredible to hear your story of how you can overcome something like that and You know, there's been so many studies trying to see how that can happen. As I mentioned to you earlier, Dr. Dean Ornish is one of my mentors. We had him on the podcast. He's one of the pioneers in having research be done to show how food can literally cure illnesses. I read in your book, you talked about multiple different ways that this could have potentially happened, such as the cruciferous vegetables. Basically, the plant chemicals can have profound effects on your DNA. What are some other ways that you think that possibly it could have benefited you? 
Yeah, the, the issue with nutritional medicine and nutritional sciences is, is is that there are a number of effects. There are a plethora of effects that food can have on our body. So it's very, very hard to pick out exactly what might have been going on. Mm-hmm. So a few ideas to put up in the air is when I eat a more plant-focused diet, I'm having more fiber. That fiber is going to be nurturing your microbiota, so the population of microbes that live in and around your body, largely gut, and that have uh, those have impacts on glucose regulation, stress regulation. They change inflammation pathways. They can signal uh, to your immune system. Um, they increase the uh, composition of short-chain fatty acids, production of short-chain fatty acids in your colon, and that can have uh, effects on inflammation signaling as well. Um, when you introduce more plants, you can change the expression of your genetic material so not your gene sequences themselves but certainly the expression of them and you mentioned dean ornish you know i was fascinated by his early papers i think as early as like the late 90s where he was showing through elegant gene mapping models how you can switch tumor suppressor genes on and switch tumor promoter genes off um, purely through lifestyle changes of which there are many um, you know, when you have more quality fats in your diet, you have omega-3, you improve those ratios. We know that impro- improves inflammation levels as well. Inflammation, uh, j- just for your listeners, it's a term that gets banded around quite a bit. But really, inflammation is perhaps one of the most important biological processes that we have. It is the reason why we can survive in a toxic environment, the reason why we can fight off uh, pathogens, um, the reason why we can respond to stress. But it's the excess of inflammation that underpins a lot of lifestyle-related illnesses. Whether or not that has an impact on atrial fibrillation, I don't know. Um, But certainly, it it, it definitely improved my chances of um, uh, or lessening the risk of lifestyle-related illnesses. Yeah, I I completely agree. And one thing you mentioned that's so important, I noticed, here in the States, I believe the recommended daily value of fiber is like 30 grams. The average American gets less than 15 you know, yeah. the third most common killer in the United States is colon cancer. And literally, it's due to a lack of fiber in our diet. A lot of people don't realize that that means eating more greens, not eating more meat. And yeah. we're we're kind of in a society where the overconsumption of meat, like a lot of people, you know, I'll ask patients, hey, um, what are some fiber rich foods you're eating? And they're like, yeah, man, I get a steak every now and then. I'm like, ah. See, that's the thing right there. Like the steak doesn't have fiber in it. We, we need to get more vegetables in, into our diet and you know, yeah. that would prevent cancer technically, right? So I definitely agree with what you're saying. That's, um, it's fascinating. I mean, it was, it was funny. I was, in, I was in work last night um, uh, and I, was, I chatted to a number of different patients all had, who presented with similar things. Um, so irregular periods, mm-hmm. um, heavy bleeding. Wow. And, uh, you know, we went through the different treatment models, um, you know, there's norethisterone and um, antifibrinolytics and a whole bunch of other things that we do as well. And obviously we investigate. Um, but one of the things that I was asking them about was fiber in their diet. And the reason why I was asking them about that is because we know fiber is a, a way in um, one of the ways in which we remove excess estrogen um, is through our colon, through having a good motion every day. And just asking these women about fiber in the diet, it was horribly, horribly deficient. These are young women as well. Oh. Uh, and the most shocking thing was not the fact that they didn't have that much fiber. They didn't even know where to get it from. 
So legumes, chickpeas, pulses, um, certain sort of types of vegetables, celery and chicory, nothing like that in the diet. And you know what, if we could shift people's understanding of where to get fiber, um, that could be pretty, pretty impactful. So one of the one of the things you're giving me here is a is a beautiful vision of where I personally see medicine going using food as medicine. So uh, what what is your vision for the future of medicine? Because you are clearly that. So my vision for the future of medicine um, is really one that um, includes food as a preventative piece and a, and a very much a part of treatment and conventional therapy. So it's not on the fringes of medicine. Um, it's one that includes a holistic uh, view of how we treat, uh, how we train medics and future yeah. surgeons and future psychiatrists into the utility of food as a preventative tool. And also one that promotes self-care amongst patients themselves. Because I think we've had this huge disconnect between uh, what we eat and the lifestyle-related outcomes that we're seeing. And right now, you know, if you look at the research on uh, the, the burden on our healthcare systems, it's largely coming from preventable diseases, which our lifestyle is a huge, huge part. 100%. Hmm. I agree, man. So yeah. we've broken down this segment of this podcast into three separate parts. It's mind, body, and spirit, right? And that's kind of the philosophy we have here at Medspiration. We're talking about that overlap. And I wanted to start with you know, your book and the things that I was reading in your book. So what really resonated with me was the mind diet. So can you please explain to me and our audience out there, what is the mind diet? So the mind diet is actually something that I came across, I think it was in 2015, 2016. Essentially, it's a modified Mediterranean diet that's taken to include a lot more berries and a lot more greens. It was specifically formulated to see um, whether it could improve mood and cognitive benefits um, with a potential application for uh, reducing the incidence of Alzheimer's. Um, it's a very, very simple diet, one that I think would most people would argue is pretty pragmatic or pretty prudent. Whole grains, dark leafy green vegetables, berries, and a good uh, color and variety, impacting a whole bunch of different pathways that probably have benefits in a multitude of different things, including cognitive benefits. Um, and there is some evidence about these types of diets improving cognitive ability and to reduce the risk of depression as well. Um, so it's something that I put in the mood chapter, along with um, another sort of diet. Um, I don't know if you come across the SMILES trial, um, but that was um, uh, done by uh, Professor Felice Jacker and colleagues. I actually had her on my podcast recently. Um, and that was the first uh, intervention trial where um, patients, so it was a small group of patients, about 70 patients, were put, were put on either dietary counselling with um, uh, a Mediterranean-style diet with whole grains and, and lots of fruits and veggies and just counseling alone. So seeing a, a psychologist uh, and, and going on their normal treatment regime, they found that in as little as two to three months, some of those patients were coming off medications for moderate to severe depression. So not mild anxiety, not mild depression, moderate to severe. And wow. Yes, that's a very small case, and we can't, you know, make 
two grand uh, and the association and um, a claim around it. But it certainly gives me a lot of hope that there should be more resources directed to this sort of therapy alongside all the other therapies that we have at the moment. You know, I'm a conventionally trained medic, still give uh, antidepressants, still treat patients with pharmaceuticals, but there is a lot more in our clinical toolbox that we should have access to and we should learn about as well. I couldn't agree more, man. That's that's beautiful. So what are polyphenols? So polyphenols are a, a type of phytochemical. Um, and phytochemicals is really an umbrella term for all the different plant chemicals that you find uh, in plants. Um, you might have heard of uh, resveratrol or anthocyanins or um, uh, sulfurophane. Um, but in reality, there are literally thousands. There's probably about six to seven thousand, some of which we've studied, a lot of which we have not. Um, and we know that uh, polyphenols that we get from uh, colorful vegetables, so fruits and veggies, um, they confer benefits to us, the human host, um, by changing signaling, to, by changing inflammation pathways, by improving. They come bound with uh, vitamins and minerals as well, as, as most foods do. Um, there are a lot of benefits to the human host, and that's why when you increase your polyphenol consumption, you see a, a myriad of benefits of reducing the risk of lifestyle-related illnesses. So I always ask patients to think of the pigments that you see in like your vibrant beetroot or your courgette, um, and the smell of those as well, and the, the acidity. All these are polyphenols. They're all uh, the phytochemicals that you find in fruits and veggies. And, and via different mechanisms, they confer benefits to, to us humans. Okay. So what are some foods I can eat for my brain health? What I did with the book is um, to separate different sections according to parts of the body or conditions, right? And, and the real um, objective of that, of that was to demonstrate how simple changes to what we eat and how we live amplify our defenses that ever getting ill. And by zooming in to different parts of the body and, and conditions, it, it almost gives you some context and it looks at the research that intersects with that. So what the lifestyle changes are, the nutrition size, uh, size that are. In the final chapter, I basically take a zoom out and I'm like, look at all the different things that we talked about for your brain, for your skin, for your immunity. It's all the same. All the principles are the same. It's eating whole foods, lots of fiber, lots of colors, uh, eating in time, and plant-focused diet, essentially, and quality fats. Um, so when, when you eat for your brain, the foods that we know of, whole grains, because it reduces your metabolic imbalance, your glucose imbalance, Yep. Uh, lots of different greens, so they contain things like sulfurophane, that is a powerful anti-inflammatory that we know find, we find in brassica vegetables, we find in cauliflower and rocket, or you guys call it arugula. We know yeah. that polyphenols that you find in berries and the flavonoids as well, so blackcurrant, blueberries. Uh, blueberries are a very famous one because there was some research, uh, I think, conducted by one of the blueberry um, producers. But black currants are very, very good sources of things like anthocyanins as well. Um, and uh, uh, water. <laughs> wow. So having good old-fashioned water regularly throughout. There you go. I'm going to take a sip right now, man. <laughs> <laughs> we know that keeping yourself hydrated has some cognitive benefits, um, reduces the risk of headaches, um, and improves your, your ability to maintain alert during the day. 
um, you know, a lot of people will go towards uh, coffee or yeah. go towards, you know, green tea. But actually, sometimes you having that slump is either because you've had a big lunch or you've got too much sugar or it's because you're not well hydrated. Um, or you haven't moved from your desk as well. That's another reason why your brain kind of switches off. So, so those are those are the, sort of the top things that I talk about when it comes to brain health. And you know, brain health is a very, very important um, uh, message right now because I know in the UK, um, Alzheimer's is now the number one killer. I'm not too sure I if it's in the US, but yeah, it's the number one killer in the U in the UK right now. It's overtaking um, cardiovascular disease, and it's sort of like the silent epidemic, I believe. Um, it can't just be explained by an aging population. Um, I think we're getting better at diagnosing it, for sure. Um, but there certainly isn't much in the way of novel therapeutics that I've come across. Um, but perhaps someone that you should definitely speak to on your podcast is a professor called Dale Bredesen, who mm -hmm. wrote a, a fascinating book called The End of Alzheimer's. And he's come up with a protocol that introduces, yes, food as medicine, but also lifestyle measures exercise, stress reduction, um, and sleep hygiene as well. And those are the things that I wrote about in the book too, actually. Yeah. yeah. You know, what I'm getting from this is a lot of these are, are simple tweaks to our everyday lives and that can help create a sustainability. And it's a lot of it's intuitive. You know, the things you're saying, they just naturally, like my body turns to that. And I know deep down that that's, those are things that could be very healthy for me, you know? So, uh, I'm actually kind of grateful that it, the nature of what you're talking about is so, it's so simple because simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. I'm always saying that. And sometimes we're always about the, the next great thing. Like this is the next product, but it's like, what about what Earth gave us? You know, Earth gives us more than enough to be able to sustain ourselves and our communities and the entire planet. It's just uh, kind of shifting that mindset towards that, you know, so. I, I totally get that. And, you know, I'm often asked uh, by patients and by people at like conferences and um, I'm speaking at this tech conference in a couple of weeks time as well. And we had a preliminary phone call. You know, everyone's asking me about what's the latest supplement, what's the new nutraceutical, should should I be taking metformin, um, should I be taking resveratrol in high dose, or what dose should I take? And it's like, in a lot of cases, some people have generally okay diets, but your diet and the way you live is far outweighing the benefits of any of those extra additions to your lifestyle. I'm not denying that these additions and nutraceuticals may have some benefits. Yep. But for the most majority of people, getting the basics down is where I want to dedicate most of my resources personally, um, because I think that's going to have a profound impact on the burden of healthcare systems across the world. You're not alone. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be doing that with you. So that's that's beautiful. I'm glad that you're out there doing that. And on the topic, you're, you spoke of anthocyanins. I know there's a lot of research out there about how they reduce depression and dementia. They're known to activate genes responsible for heightening antioxidant activity, which can prevent cancer. Uh, and they're found mainly in the red colored foods, right? The beetroot, yes. which you just did a post on Instagram today about beets, which uh, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's fitting uh, red onions and wild berries, right? So, yeah. um, and it's so cool because we're looking at just fruits and vegetables and we're we're getting so deep into the science and just realizing, oh, there's so many benefits of fruits and vegetables. It's insane. Yeah. You know, yeah, so. I know. It's great. I mean, anthocyanin, 
I absolutely love it. We had a whole lecture um, module on it uh, a couple of months ago from my nutritional masters by someone who studies anthocyanins for a living, which I find amazing. Um, wow. The funny thing about anthocyanins is that, they're, they're, yes, they're in red foods, um, in, in berries, uh, in your red cabbage. Um, beetroot actually has betaine, uh, which is a slightly different type of phytochemical. Um, and what's interesting about anthocyanins is that when you look at the research uh, looking at how we ingest anthocyanin, right, uh, or, or any phytochemical for that matter, what happens when you ingest it is that um, the glucose uh, is taken out of the actual molecule, so it becomes a different type of molecule, something called an aglycone, yep. and then it's metabolized by your microbiota into a myriad of different metabolites. So there's like 20 or 30 that I'm aware of uh, where anthocyanin becomes anthocyanidin and then a whole bunch of others I can't remember the names of. And those have different impacts on your um, microbiota and, and in your bloodstream as well. And so trying to figure out why does red cabbage or increased consumption of red foods seem to be associated with cardiovascular disease risk reduction is so hard because wow. um, yeah. you, you it's very hard to because we're dealing with complex molecules we're not dealing with singular molecules like acetaminophen or or metformin for that matter you know we're, we're dealing with something that actually changes huge amounts and it's also coupled with a whole bunch of other things when you eat it in its raw form i.e in a berry because yep. you're having prebiotics with it you're having vitamins with it you're having everything and that's why you know um, I'm always a little bit skeptical of when people try to supplement with vitamin E or vitamin C alone. And that's why when you look at those studies, those big, big studies um, looking at supplementation of, of vitamin E in isolation in, in a moderate dose, you either don't see any benefits or sometimes, unfortunately, you see some harm. Um, yeah. That's why I'm a, I'm a massive, massive fan of a whole foods approach to medicine. And, you know, Dean Ornish has been pioneer of that for many years and, and been following his work and a lot of other people's work um and and that's the answer you know it's i, agree. I, I love to I, I love talking about food in a reductionist sense as well i love talking about pathways i love trying to figure out okay how is this having some sort of benefit on the downstream pathways but really i need to drag myself upstream and think okay well what's the solution it's staring at us from our grocery aisles um yeah. You mentioned you mentioned the the term reductionist. One thing I've noticed with medicine is you know we're uh, especially in the states we're so reductionist with the science that we've we've broken things down to the smallest tiniest detail and like I can explain to you the complex pathways the names everything but you know are we like you're saying even at the end of your book taking that step back looking at the entire picture and how is because sometimes that could become just as dogmatic. Uh, I think it's important even as scientists and innovators to be able to not just know the reductionist side, but then to bring it back to the holistic side, you know, and that's uh, I think that's going to be our job, you know, and just just speaking with you, getting your vibe. Um, it, again, it just reaffirms to me that there's there's other people that understand the benefit of it. And I think that's the GP's job. You know, our job is the entire lifestyle, like from when you wake up to when you go to sleep every moment, not just one little detail, you know, and that's where you start seeing, yeah, food is such a big deal because we have to eat X amount of times a day or else we can't even live. 
you know, I, I came across this way of thinking probably earlier than this, but um, T. Colin Campbell's last book, I think, called Whole, mm-hmm. it really made me think about this uh, approach to reductionism and, holi- and, and holism, for want of a better word. Because, um, you know, even he is aware of uh, the reductionist principles in his own community as a, as a scientist. That book, I think, is fantastic for people who want to think and know a bit more about this um, th- th- this method of trying to improve overall health. It's not just about promoting the benefits of going vegan or plant-focused, whatever. It's actually about, okay, the way in which you do that and how you consume food in its holistic form or its uh, in its processed form. That makes sense. So next, I want to want to talk about food as medicine for our body. I want to concentrate on the health benefits of certain foods and the scientific standpoint. So I feel like there's no better place to start than nutrigenetics. Okay. It's in the book. So what what is nutrigenetics? So nutrigenetics or nutrigenomics or um, genomic nutrition, um, it's it's really uh, eating to change the expression of your genes. So we know through gene modeling maps that um, Dean Ornish has done, a whole bunch of other uh, researchers, that you can change the expression of your genes positively by changing your external environment. And one of which of those is food, right? So increasing your consumption of brassica vegetables not only floods your body with different phytochemicals, increases your microbiota or nurtures your microbiota with fiber, as well as all the other things that we find in foods, it may have the, the ability to change the expression of your genes. Uh, that sounds really weird and wacky, um, but there are four main pathways by which you can change that, one of which is methylation, self-inrination, apicinylation, and phosphorylation, I believe, is the fourth one. Um, and not only with food, but you can also do that with your lifestyle as well. So um, there are some other uh, studies looking at physical activity and how that not only massively reduces your inflammation pathway, one of the ways in which it does that is through changing your gene expression. Stress as well. So... Another fantastic book for your listeners is um, uh, the work of Blackburn and uh, I forget the, the Nobel laureates mm-hmm. um, that looked at the telomeres, oh. the, the little ends of your chromosomes that are a biological uh, marker. Telomeres. Yeah, 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 yeah. Telomere effect. That was the name of the book. Um, and I thought that book was going to be all about, you know, the nutraceuticals and supplements to take to extend your lifespan. A lot of that book was about mindfulness. And exactly. when you change your stress state, when you uh, meditate, when you are put in a uh, stressless environment, you can change the expression of your genes as well. Um, and, and that's why, like, you know, I'm a massive advocate of, yes, eating berries and, yes, eating colorful foods and plant-focused diet to improve your nutrigenetic output. But, you know, it's also going to be in context with your lifestyle. There's no point you exactly. green smoothies and, you know, Buddha bowls and stuff if you're constantly in a stressed state. Um, so I think it's just as impactful. I, I agree. And, you know, there's practical examples to this. There's a guy named, uh, oh, what is his name? Dr. Bruce Lipton, right? And I, and I learned about him. He's going to be on our podcast next. So I think it's a, it's a perfect little transition. But 
You know, he did a study where they, they took uh, stem cells, pluripotent stem cells, and they put them in different environments, right? And in different environments, certain cells would become bone, certain yeah. cells would become muscle, and certain cells would become fat. And I think it's something to, to just practically think about. We're an organism that has a bunch of cells and a bunch of bacteria. The environment we're in determines what is expressed. A practical example is exercise. So if, I, if I'm exercising five times a week, I'm lifting weights, my bones are going to get denser. You know, my muscle, my muscles are going to get bigger. Absolutely. And, you know, when you consume these different sorts of foods and, you know, the foods that I'd be talking about when it comes to uh, nutrigenomics are, are just the simple things that you find on your supermarket shelves. So, and I like to separate them by color. So if you're going to go for the greens, yes, so brassica vegetables, uh, your broccoli, your rocket or arugula, um, your Romanesco, um, bok choy, pak choy, um, all these different sort of uh, Chinese cabbage, wonderful ingredient, very, very cheap. Um, those are going to be flooding your blood system. They're going to be flooding your cells and bathing your cells in all the different micronutrients that they have. So that is literally going to change your gene expression in itself. When you combine that with the effect that it has on your microbiota through fiber and providing indigestible fibers, to this population that slaves away day in, day out, yep. change, digesting food for you and then change the metabolomic picture. Another thing um, is, uh, is even the absence of food as well. Yeah. So when you're not eating, which I think is, is as important as eating as well, and I think it's Amen. become quite, um, quite popular of late, but also the research seems to be catching up as well when you choose to not eat can be as impactful as when you choose to eat. So what you, what you choose to eat when you're eating, yes, great. When you're not eating, how long you're not eating for what kind of state you're not eating, those sorts of things can have an impact on your uh, genetic profile and your genetic expression too, in a positive or negative way. Um, and so I think that's, yeah, that's super important. I think we're, we're learning a lot more about uh, what kind of, Fasting measures may be impactful, um, but I don't think we're there yet with what the pattern looks like. And that's why I'm an advocate for just keeping a good 11 to 12 hour window where you do not eat every single day. And that's it. Hey, and you talked about uh, Blackburn and like it's been scientifically proven that that fasting, at least for the amount that you're talking about, it's proven to keep the length of your telomeres longer. And an example of that is when they when they do tests on on rats and mice they make them fast and it's kind of cruel but that's to have them live longer so they can do more tests on them and i mean <laughs> but, the, but the bottom line the the telomeres is like you know is the part of the cell where every time our cells divide the telomeres shrink and basically our cells divide less when our gut gets to rest you know yeah. so it's a big picture it's pretty simple but hey it's been scientifically proven to prolong life i genuinely do that where uh, at least eight to 12 hours, sometimes 14 to 16, depending on where I'm at. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to eat. I'm going to give my gut a rest, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a perfect transition into uh, something you mentioned in your book. You say healthy is in the gut of the beholder, right? Yeah. And, and that goes into the microbiome. Can you tell our audience out there, what is the microbiome and what nutrients can we eat or not eat to affect it positively? Sure, yeah. So the microbiome, 
uh, that's I-O-M-E, is the genetic material of the microbes that you have in and around your body, but largely concentrated in your gut. The microbiota, the actual microbes. And these microbes, yes, are largely bacteria, but they also include things like viruses, nematodes, fungi, to a much less degree. Your microbiota covers your entire surface of your body, may even be in your bloodstream, including your lungs, and maybe in your brain as well, um, as Rudolf Tanzi has been doing some interesting research in that. The main things you need to know is that nurturing this population of microbes is beneficial to health because they do a number of different things. They digest your food, they release micronutrients, they improve inflammation pathways, they um, they're responsible for your reaction to um, high sugar foods as well. And the best way to look after them is feed them the right types of food. And when it comes to your microbiota, the foods that you want to be eating are fibers and lots of different types of fibers. There are specialized types of fibers called prebiotic fibers that mm-hmm. beneficially impact your microbes. So things like garlic, chicory, onion, um, those can be problematic for certain people that suffer with a particular type of irritable bowel syndrome, which is why they might need to go on something called a low FODMAP diet with a, the um, uh, advice of a dietitian. Okay, but for okay. the majority of people, those sorts of foods are absolutely wonderful at trying to nurture this population. The other things that we know that impact the microbiota now, and this again, like every time I learn about all these different things, it kind of just it just hits the same principles over and over again. Exercise definitely improves the microbiota. Sleep or sleep deprivation can be impactful to the microbiota. Exogenous pharmaceuticals, so um, antibiotics, obviously, can wipe out your microbiota. But also diets that lack fiber. So unfortunately, whilst I believe in some therapeutic benefits of the ketogenic diet, because some studies have shown that it can be just as detrimental as a round of antibiotics. yeah, so it, it, it is something to, to be wary of, particularly when people are trying these diets and they, they might not even need to try a ketogenic diet. They're just trying to look after the lifestyle and improve some aspect of their physiology or, or their appearance or whatever. You may not go to that extreme, but I don't doubt that ketogenic diet may have some benefits to certain people. Um, uh, and, uh, and and stress, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> Stress, uh, stress, we know can be detrimental to your microbiota. Um, again, it's been proven. Um, there are uh, it, we are in the infancy when it comes to uh, knowledge around everything to do with the microbiota, but it, there's certainly enough for me to suggest that all these different things, if you get right, can improve gut symptoms, but also the the general population of microbiota. They're doing fabulous things for your body. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, as a GP, I'll come, I'll see patients and they'll have every investigation you can think of. They would have seen the gastroenterologist, they would have tried different dietary regimes, they would have had the colonoscopy, they would have had a whole bunch of different blood tests and still the same symptoms, still this vicious cycle, sometimes where it gets so bad that they fear food, they mm. fear eating anything because they get symptoms. And I I don't want to discredit anyone by saying, you know, it's all in your head. But I know that um, psychological strain is certainly something that has an impact on our guts because there is this thing called the gut-brain axis that is very, very real. Um, You know, the butterflies you get in your stomach when you're anxious, 
you know, often when you read uh, historical literature, they always talk about these sort of um, uh, things that you get in your gut when you're nervous or when you're in love or when you're emotional, you know, all these different things. And that at the extreme level can lead to some quite destructive symptoms. Um, I had a friend of mine on the podcast, she's a neurogastroenterologist, and we were talking about breathing as a mechanism for improving gut health. It's, it's quite incredible. We're going to get into that when we get to spirit because I, I've been, I, I definitely agree with it. And, you know, something you're saying, they, they almost they call the microbiome the second brain sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, one of the, the few facts that really blew my mind that I didn't really know a few years back was I think most of our microbiome is in our gut, like 80 percent of it. And it can be responsible for producing things like serotonin that can make you feel happy. If you start thinking about this long term, imagine you ate really good for like two months Oh, darn, you're going to feel really good after that, you know, and I'm not saying it's that simple, yeah. but, you know, when you keep it that simple in your head and it, if it inspires you to eat a little healthier, um, I think it's going to be cool to find out where science goes with this. Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the mechanisms that was postulated in the, the trial that I spoke about earlier with the um, uh, moderate to severe depressed patients who were put on a diet. It's fairly Mediterranean. It had some fish oil, um, some, some oily fish, um, and nothing nothing particularly spectacular. Mm-hmm. But the results were incredible. And one of the reasons was postulated that, you know, maybe we improve their microbiota such that they improve the uh, production of neurotransmitters um, or improve the balance of them anyway. That led to a resolution in some cases of their mental health disorders, which is incredible, right? The cells, there's so many different, so many different numbers that we throw floated about, you know, do they outnumber us by one in 10 or one in 100? I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but they definitely outnumber us. And the genomic material is huge. And there is yeah. this huge untapped resource. And, you know, I, I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a gut health researcher, and she's like, maybe instead of um, us thinking about feeding and nourishing our body when we eat food we should really be thinking okay how do we eat and nourish for our microbiota because it's almost like when a woman is pregnant she's constantly thinking about okay what what can i eat to improve the health of my baby we have like these millions of babies or millions of microbes in our body maybe we start thinking about food as nourishing them as well because they are essentially helping us um, so that I thought was quite an interesting way of thinking, and perhaps that will um, uh, change the way we, we see food in the future. Wow. Well, it changed the way I see food. I'm going to start thinking like that. That's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. What is sulforaphane? Because I've, I've had a few people who, you know, they're in good shape. Uh, they must know more than I do about it. But they're like, <laughs> hey, have you heard about sulforaphane? This is the truth. Somebody showed me a Joe Rogan podcast where there's a doctor like talking about it. And I was like, all right. You know, I saw you mention it. I was like, okay, can you give us some detail about what it is and what it does? Sure, sure, yeah. So, so purifene is this novel phytochemical compound that you find in brassica vegetables. Um, it's it's highly, highly prevalent in um, uh, broccoli, but more so in broccoli sprouts. Around two to three days uh, of sprouting broccoli, um, you just have this huge amount of sulfurophane. And, there are whole researchers dedicated to this one phytochemical, in much the same way as resveratrol, much the same way as anthocyanin. The reason why it's gathering so much attention is because it's a powerful anti-inflammatory. So there may be some benefits in terms of reducing the risk of cancer, maybe even treating obesity. 
Um, but the other thing is that um, it's uh, it, it's being supplemented now and in high doses, and it, and it could have uh, an impact on reducing um, the impact of environmental pollutants and actually encouraging the liver to uh, amplify its uh, detoxification mechanisms. So there was this study, uh, if I rightly remember, the one that you're, you're mentioning in um, uh, the Joe Rogan podcast, mm-hmm. uh, uh, where they supplemented uh, a bunch of uh, people who were living in a particularly polluted area of China, um, and they had high levels of environmental pollutants measured in their, in their serum. They were given a dehydrated uh, broccoli sprout extract, a very high amount of uh, sulfurophane in it. And I think they saw some like ridiculous results of like a huge um, downward turn of, of uh, environmental pollutants measured again in their blood after supplementation with this sulfurophane. I can't remember whether it was a controlled study or not, um, uh, but that that's been gathering a lot of attention. And, you know, in a world where environmental pollution is very much on the tip of everyone's tongue and we're becoming a lot more aware of climate change, uh, global warming, um, it, it may prove something to actually have. You know, oh, if I was living in China, I'm, I might actually consider supplementing <laughs> it, to be honest. Um, it's unlikely to do harm, that's for sure, because it's uh, it's a naturally occurring compound and you find it in cruciferous vegetables. Um, so, yeah, so that that's the deal with sulfurophane. As a, as a consumer, you know, I'm a big fan of brassica vegetables any, anyway, and I think variety is probably the most important thing. So, you know, I'll be having it every day in the form of um, broccoli, red cabbage. I had savoy cabbage today. Cool. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for that. Next thing I want to talk about is probably, I'm guessing, one of the most popular parts of your book is eating for our skin. Now, skin care is like one of the biggest things in the world because, you know, that's you can physically see it. Is there physical foods that you can eat to have healthier skin? If so, what are they? So the main thing I, I say with skin health is um, trying to look at what you can put into your diet rather than what you can take out. And I think with skin in particular, a lot of people immediately turn to removing dairy and gluten. And whilst oh, I've heard I, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what, whilst I, I recognize a lot of my patients certainly have issues with, with gluten, dairy, and, and other intolerances as well, it's not just those. Um, for, I always first like to look at the quality of their diet. So if you look at the quality of a lot of people's diets, lots of fried foods, lots of refined carbohydrates, we know that there is a link or an association with high glycemic diets and the breakouts of things like acne, um, eczema as well, um, as well as um, uh, other lack of uh, nutrition and lack of micronutrients. So carotenoids that you find in colorful vegetables, hydration, lack of hydration there and that thereof, and um, stress are the main things that I look at in people's diets um, and people's lifestyles. Um, Because I think, as you've probably come across as well, and loads of people that I speak to, whether it be psoriasis, eczema, another inflammatory condition, when I get stressed, doctor, I flare. Yeah, yeah, always. There's clearly, clearly connection there. Absolutely. Um, And so addressing that in a a subtle way, not to just say, you know, it's all in your head, um, with with a combination of um, creams and other topicals as needed is definitely the way I look at things. But doing a, a rough 24-hour diet recall is, is how I, I get you know, the bare bones of what people are eating. You know, what do you have for breakfast, lunch, dinner? What do you snack on? What do you drink? 
Those are the five questions I ask. Uh, and that'll give me a general idea of like, if they've got enough micronutrients in their diet, what small tweaks can I do? What's the next best step for the uh, next best best step for them? So mm-hmm. is it improving their breakfast? Is it increasing their portion or moving the can of Coke or the two cans of Cokes? Will that have an effect before we start thinking about more extreme measures of whether they have uh, an intolerance to, to dairy or gluten or, or other food articles? That's an interesting thing you mentioned because uh, usually I hear that too. Like, oh, I was breaking out cut out the dairy and i know that there's some some protein in in milk specifically cow's milk that can cause inflammation so i know that helps but that's a really cool way of looking at it and i was actually interested in how like in a short amount of time how can you get your patients to reveal to you what they eat and how do you get a big picture so how, can you repeat that for us and all the doctors out there yeah, you- sure yeah yeah so i think it's a very effective me- me- means and um, it's something that we teach on our culinary medicine program so the five questions I ask uh, in, a, in a very non-judgmental way and uh, like, you know, I, I try and uh, give them a, enough time. So I just say like in the last 24 hours, what did you have for breakfast? What do you have for lunch? What did you have for dinner? What did you drink and what do you snack on? Okay. Uh, those will give me an indication of the, the main triggers, right? If they're eating breakfast at all. So Breakfast, yes, I understand that, you know, you don't want to be eating first thing in the morning. If you're not hungry, you don't want to force anything. But sometimes it's the opportunity to increase fruit and vegetable consumption. So increasing your exposure to all those wonderful micronutrients and fibers that you find in food. And if you're not having breakfast, then you want to make sure that you're getting a lot of those veggies and fruits and and, and the exposure to all those foods in your lunch and, and dinner or whenever you choose to eat yeah um so yeah asking them about what they they have what do they snack on so do they have biscuits and gummies and and sweets around the house do they work in a hospital like me and you where there's cookies everywhere and like you know they or, induce diabetes in the hospital man i'm like you know somebody every day has brought cake for a birthday cupcakes yeah. for no occasion you're like okay whoa <laughs> I have this nurse. She's great. She always brings in some cookies at like 4 p.m. for tea. And it's like, it's really nice. She's really maternal and stuff. But like at the same time, I'm like, oh, this is, you can't be doing this every single day. It's not, it's not right. We're not meant to be doing this. But anyway, and what do they drink as well? So we know that sugar-sweetened beverages, um, luckily there's a tax on it here at the moment for now. Um that uh, they, they are one of the biggest contributors to excess energy consumption mm-hmm. and um and potentially disruptive uh, uh foods as well drinks and because you know we, we've got kids on energy drinks you know, that's not a good combination where they're trying to to learn and trying to maintain attention and concentration at school uh-huh. um, but even for the adult population it disrupts sleep um they are, have high high amounts of caffeine in um, and the sugar as well alone is just something that we know can impact your skin as well, going back to skin. So, yeah, those are, those are the questions that I ask. If I had more time uh, or if I've asked them to come back, I ask them to do a seven-day food diary. That already changes behavior, though. So you've got to be right. aware of that. Well, when people write things down, they will either admit some things or they will naturally change their behavior because they, they automatically think they're being watched. Flexion, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is great, and it might impact them going forward, but, you know, it's just something to, to be aware of. 
that's pretty smart because it's like, hey, bring this back to me and we'll go over it together. And now you're already influencing the decisions they're making by that. I, I like that. I like that. I'm going to take that. Like I've, what's so cool about podcasting is I can take something so cool from you, just implement it into my into medicine and help people. The next things that I want to get into. So we've hit mind and body and how food is medicine can kind of connect it all. The things that people don't talk about as much as I believe they will, and one of the, our biggest goals in Medspiration is speaking about spirit, bridging the gap between that that space and mind and body on three separate parts. I have my mind, I have my body, I have my spirit. We mentioned before we got on this conversation, you know, um, I've been meditating for six years now. It's something I do daily, and it was actually Wim Hof who inspired me to start doing that. For me, it started as breath work out in nature. It went from breath work to doing some mantras. It went from breath work and mantras to praying, then going into meditation and contemplativeness. And that's kind of where it's at today. After six years, I have a process. I, I begin with the breath work. I go into the mantras. I'll pray. And then I just reflect. And I allow whatever it is to come to unfold. I spoke about this with Dean Ornish, who's probably meditated longer than you and I combined. And, and you know, he, he talks about that at that last stage where uh, the contemplative practice, that meditation, where you allow things to come. Sometimes you get a lot of great insight. I know a lot of my creative inspiration comes from that space. That's kind of how I've broken down spirituality into my everyday life. Just this last month, I was on service. We're putting in like 90 hours a week. I meditated every morning before I went in. It was four. I got to wake up at four o'clock. I'm going to do it because then I just have a selective advantage throughout the day because I allow things to come to me. I want to hear your take for myself and the audience. How do you integrate spirituality into your life and in food and mindfulness, all of it? Yeah, man. That, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's uh, a, a fantastic part of lifestyle medicine and one that probably gets overlooked quite a bit in um, in conventional medicine. I was taught how to meditate when I was a kid. Um, when I was a teenager, my parents taught me. Um, I quickly forgot about it when I was at med school. I went back to doing it during exams, and then I went back to doing it when I had my own health complaints as well, and I started my meditation practice again. I've been a very intermittent meditator my whole life, um, but the last few years, particularly with starting The Doctor's Kitchen, and constantly feeling overwhelmed with a whole bunch of uh, things that we have to deal with. I'm starting a practice now that's a lot more, um, a, a lot more, uh, not not rigid, but it's definitely a lot more scheduled into my daily life. Yep, yep, so yep. I, I I wake up in the mornings now. I do my my affirmation. Um, uh, it's a mantra that I I write down with my left hand, my non-dominant hand, on a piece of paper next to the the bed. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's it's just something very simple, very personal to me. And I just literally write the same thing every single day. First thing I do, that's what I do. I, I go, I, you know, brush my teeth, whatever. And then I sit on a chair and I'll do my meditation for 10 minutes. And it will just be a present meditation. So it won't be guided. It will just be me either body scanning, checking in, seeing how I'm feeling. And then I go and do my workout. My My workout is actually part of like, my spirit building activity because it's like i do it for myself i refresh my body and i i feel fantastic the other thing i've started doing is um a meditation in the evening and my evening meditation is actually guided so i use an app because uh, i feel at the end of the day it's quite hard for me to like 
switch off a bit um, yeah, yeah. and I might need a little bit of help. Maybe in the future I wouldn't need it as guided. Um, but right now, like I really find a guided meditation is awesome just before I go to bed. Um, and I do my gratitude exercise. So I was sharing a gratitude exercise in my Instagram for 700 days, I think, straight. Um, and I would just literally go to my phone and be like, these are the three things I'm grateful for today. And it could be something as simple as like the bus driver smiled at me today or like something really significant like today I got a book deal or, um, you know, today I got a really nice message from a patient, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and honestly, man, it's it's changed my perspective. It's made me a lot more positive. It's made me a lot more resilient when it comes to uh, all the things that we deal with as doctors being overwhelmed the down days, the days where, you know, patients are unhappy and angry and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's and it, even on a daily basis, man, like I just see the beauty in everything. Yeah. It, it feels like, you know, I, mean, I, don't, I don't take drugs, but it feels like what I imagine it would be like to take drugs, like I, where I, everything is incredible. Like trees are amazing. Like this yeah. is a, is an incredible human being in front of me. I know, They've got this incredible microbiota. They, they're resilient. They're like, you know, they they probably have a loving, caring attitude in the right environment. You know, you just end up seeing the beauty in everything. Um, yeah, I, I, it's just something I've been reflecting on quite a bit. Um, and I think I, I'm very fortunate as well, dude. I think it's also like important to recognize the privilege that we have. Oh, yeah. I had parents. I have parents. I have a family. I'm loved. I have friends you know i'm very very lucky it's almost like why wouldn't i be happy um yeah, yeah. So I, i've noticed so much there the first thing that you say you know writing with the the left hand uh one of uh, my friends who's a psychiatrist she calls it neurobics uh -huh. uh, where you know using the the least dominant hand activating a part of your brain that you don't use yeah. and you know it seems like gratitude which to me became such a, a huge part of my entire life because the space that you're coming from, we talk about neuroplasticity all the time. It seems like you've gotten to a point where you've trained your brain to find blessings in everything, right? And that's where you could come from that magical space where you're going to find the beauty in everything because you realize, well, that attracts more opportunity. That attracts more success. That also attracts more wealth mentally, physically, spiritually. That connects to the entire being. I completely agree with everything that you're saying from that perspective. And, you know, there's... There's just so many benefits. I think finding what works for you best is one of the only ways to do it. I used to think meditation is something that's out of my reach. It's something that's going to be too hard to do because you know only someone great can do it. But things as simple as taking off your shoes, walking in the grass, and practicing silence for 15 minutes while you do it can, can promote different aspects of your being that you wouldn't expect. I realize spirit may overtake mind and body. Like you were saying, I've gotten really strict with making sure that I actually do meditate every morning, every day, just because I felt like the benefits of doing so, they outweigh everything else and they allow me to make more mindful decisions with what I'm putting into my body, the way I choose to think. So I know you're an incredibly passionate individual. Doctor's Kitchen is your baby. What I want to ask and what I, what I believe has happened there is no matter how much stress has come from it, uh, one thing Medspiration did for me it forced me to level up to become the best version of myself every day. I feel like, you know, because I'm speaking on something that 
affects so many people. We reach millions of people every week. It's something, if I don't live up to that standard, then, then what do we really stand for? You know? Mm -hmm. And for you, is it similar? I think this is your service to mankind. Does that actually inspire you to be more mindful? Does that inspire you to, to live a better lifestyle? Yeah, absolutely, man. I think like a really important part of being well is actually having a sense of purpose. And it doesn't need to have, it doesn't need to be a grand vision like, like yours, for example, or, or mine, you know, where you need to inspire millions of people per week. It can be as very simple as like, you know, being the best father I can or, you know, being the best person for my company or, you know, my family or, or whatever, or just being a, like an, an active member of the community. Um, but having that sense of purpose that is really, really intertwined with your daily life is so, so important. So, yeah, to answer your question, me being held accountable by this baby that I've, I've made or whatever, it, it really does, like, you know, keep me on the straight and narrow and it, and it keeps me inspired as well every single day. You know, I'm constantly thinking about how I can better the doctor's kitchen, how I can put great content out, how I can engage better, how I can, you know, really live up to the mission, which is to help people live healthier, happy lives using food and lifestyle medicine. Reminds me of Kobe Bryant, man, because uh, you know, he was saying like in order to become the best possible basketball player he ever wanted to become, everything that happened in his life is just doing it of it. And he saw it from a perspective that it's going to make me a better basketball player. Everything that happens is going to help add to my vision. Right. And that's the same thing with menstruation or the doctor's kitchen. No matter what moment comes in our life, it's like, okay, how can this benefit myself and the world? Like how can this enhance the vision while improving the quality of life? And it's such a win-win and such a tweak that I feel like it does create that space where the more beauty you find in everything, the more insights you gain, you know? And that's something that's just, that's beautiful. I'm glad that you have that. Like, uh, you know, God bless you for that, man. That's really cool. Oh, and you too, man. (laughs) With that, we're going to get into the last portion of our podcast. This is the most popular portion of our podcast. So before uh, we do our podcast, we put on Instagram, this is who we're going to have on our podcast, submit questions to be featured. Within like, I think it was only like 16 hours because yesterday I was on service and I was like, oh, I did the post late. You know, um, <laughs> I think we got like 45 different questions for you. Oh, right? wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to ask you 45 questions. We, we put it down to four questions that were the most commonly asked questions. Okay. Cool. So question number one comes from Nevi R. Land. And I'm sorry if I butchered that handle. What's your stance on natural flavorings in ingredients lists? Is it really natural? So natural flavorings, unfortunately, is a very, very broad and specific, unspecific term. Mm-hmm. And it can include things that are like synthetic and potentially harmful, as well as ones that are actually you know, natural and they're probably harmless. So it's really, really hard to tell, if I'm honest. And I know that uh, the regulations regarding U.S. and U.K. are very, very different. Current. better from what I hear, man. We got no yeah, yeah. regulations out here. Well, for now, well, so we're, we're actually governed under EU law. But uh, as many people are aware, we're leaving the EU uh, at the end of this month, potentially. So I don't know what that means for us. Um, but it, it's very, very hard. Um, if I was if I'm honest, like. If you're going to enjoy something that, you know, has a label and has got, you know, it's sweet or like, you know, um, it's something you're trying to have as a treat then just enjoy it because your body is one hell of 
an incredible machine and it can tolerate a lot in your environment. So you're going to have it like I wouldn't worry about it too much. And then we get caught up in a bit, a bit too much. You're going to have this every single day. Well, you don't want anything with that much of a list anyway that includes natural flavoring. You want to have as many whole foods and different plant-focused ingredients as possible. So that's sort of my sort of cop-out answer to it because yeah. it's a broad, broad question. I agree with that. I always say everything in moderation, too much of anything will kill you. Uh, if you enjoy something, don't think that you, you got to just cut it out because it's something that might be detrimental. Just – you know, don't do it so much that it's it's going to affect you in the long term. Because if I'm, I'm doing something three times a day, every day for the rest of my life, odds are it's going to have detriment to my health. I have a drink um, every now and then. Like uh, uh, my drink is a, a nice tequila with cucumber tonic. And the brand of cucumber tonic that I drink is really good. It's a premium tonic. But I've noticed it has natural flavorings in. And that, that could mean anything. I don't know. But does it mean I'm not going to have that? No, I'm going to have that tonic because I'm not going to have that much of it, first yeah. of all. I don't have it that often, and it, it really doesn't matter. It, for someone who doesn't have any conditions, who you know, is thankfully healthy, um, and majority of the time you know, I'm eating like a perfect diet, you know, having a little bit of luxury and a treat every now and then without any guilt is probably the best way to be and live a healthy lifestyle. So question number two is by Ryan. He asks, is organic food actually better than regular food? And if so, why? So organic food and conventional produce is a tough one right now because just because something is labeled organic doesn't mean it's pesticide free. I think the main issue here is is the use of uh, agric- agricultural petrochemicals um, and the impact on the environment. So with regard to uh, agricultural practices using petrochemicals, the official stance is that there isn't enough evidence to suggest that they are harmful. My personal pragmatic stance is something should be guilty until proven otherwise. In a lot of cases, particularly when it comes to agricultural petrochemicals, we have found out about the, uh, the issues with them quite late down the line. Yeah. And with the amount of chemicals that are now sprayed onto crops, um, particular some that I know in the US are pretty harmful, like mm-hmm. Roundup and glyphosate and, and a whole bunch of other things that are detrimental to your microbiota. My personal preference is to choose organic where possible. Yeah. The most pragmatic thing I think is to have as many different fruits and vegetables as possible. The reason why is because they contain all the different micronutrients that will help you improve your ability to remove environmental pollutions in the first place. Uh-huh. One of which being fiber, so it actually removes it from your, your colon, but also through your liver and your kidney and hydration, etc. But um, my, my pragmatic approach is to choose the food landscape that you want to thrive in, and that's one with organic vegetables. Um, and unfortunately, that isn't a popular answer because it means that there's a tiered system with the foods that we consume, one yeah. that more affordable than the other and food fresh food at the moment is already really really expensive so um my pragmatic view is yeah i'd like to go organic but that doesn't mean sorry to go back to my initial point that doesn't mean that they're free of pesticides unfortunately because they're often grown in similar areas and there's a lot of uh, converse spray um but i would choose organic if possible that's what i hear i know usda organic it doesn't mean it's free of those things. I think it was like it was either 90 or 95 percent free. 
you know? Yeah. So even even the, the USDA organic stuff still has some of that in it. Yeah, sorry. No, the other aspect is um, the environment uh, as well. So when we're using uh, quite harsh chemicals in the environment, we, we know it's detrimental to the biome of the soil. Mm-hmm. And I don't think a lot of people are thinking about the biome of the soil right now. So, you know, within our within the earth, you don't just have nitrate and phosphate and potassium. You have microbes. You have bacteria. And if you're spraying them with pesticides that are there to reduce life, i.e., insecticides and pesticides, you're going to be altering that. This, yeah. going to be altering that that phytobiome, um, the, the the biome of the soil, and that I don't think is given enough attention and. That's another reason why I think we should try and choose the food landscape, our future food landscape, by going organic because um, it could impact the environment to the to, for the better. Question number three, uh, Lady Kincaid asks, what's the easiest food as medicine tip you can share? Uh, I think the easiest food as medicine tip is it's it's exactly what I was saying earlier. Uh, it's just these these five things, right? Yeah. Plant focused. Colorful foods, lots of fiber, quality fats, eating in time. Those are the, the main things. And honestly, you can't derive, you can't, you can't reduce food as medicine to like singular elements like broccoli or onions or garlic. They're incredible. Together, it's that it's that holistic plate, it's that variety that makes food so impactful to health. That's that's perfect. Thank you. Uh, question number four, Michael asks. How are you able to balance creating a successful platform alongside the demands of medicine? That's a really good question. So over the last four years since I started the project, uh, I'm I'm fully qualified as a general practitioner. I also work in emergency medicine, but I now work part time. So two to three days a week, I'm in clinic. The other four days, uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, it's weekends, it's podcasting, it's the nonprofit, it's the writing articles, the research, my master's, uh, and developing this digital platform that hopefully will improve the diets of, of thousands, if not millions of people around the world. Um, I'm basically creating um, digital doctor's kitchen uh, uh, dinners um, where you could you can click a button and it will connect with online supermarkets, deliver the ingredients to your door so you can ensure you're getting a ton of veggies and good flavor on your plates. <laughs> that's that's my dream, man. One day, like once I finish residency, like I want to be part time and then I just want to work on my craft and how I can add to mankind before I'm gone. You know, so definitely, man. Beautiful. How much longer have you got? So residency here for family medicine is three years. I'm three months into my first year. So I have two years and nine months. Mate, you're killing it. Just get your head down, get that done, and then keep crushing it whilst you're you're working as well, man. You're good. (laughs) And nothing's going to stop it, man. We've been keeping the podcast going. We're keeping the nonprofit going. Like, um, again, there's like, there's something, I'm part of something bigger than myself. And like, we have teams that are, that believe in the vision. So it's gotten to a point now where like, no matter what variable you throw at us, like we're, we're going to get through it, you know? And that's, uh, I think that's required for any organization before you get to a point where, you know, you get, you gain some sort of value to add to the world. So, uh, but it's kind of cool because I see so much overlap between our lives that, I'm just so glad we had this conversation, you know? Definitely, man. <laughs> so last question. We actually ask every single one of our guests on this podcast. 
So when you hear the word medspiration, what does it mean to you and what does it invoke? Medspiration, you know, the first time I heard of the, the when I saw it, medspiration, I was like, in my head, it was like, is it about medics that are inspirational to other medics to try and uh, overall, like, improve the profession, as in, like, lift everyone up? Like, medspiration is there to put a spotlight on what other medics are doing around the field to really lift the whole profession, actually elevate everyone's knowledge of what, how much cool stuff there is going on out there. Because we all know there's cool stuff going out there, but sometimes, you know, it's putting a spotlight on on the underserved, the ones that don't have much of a voice, um, and, you know, the other people could would love to hear about and connect. That's the first thing I thought about when I thought of Medspiration. That's great. Everybody that's involved in the world contributes to health in some way. How can we make this world a better place through medicine? You know, and science is the coolest thing ever, man. <laughs> I think it's going to be our job to make it cool again, though. Yeah, totally, man. Totally. I hate you. There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling medspired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And as always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and do something medspiring.